0: Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now your host,
1: soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Joe Frasca, and we're going to be talking all about psychotherapy, Jo is in private practice in Sydney, Australia, working with adults, adolescents, and couples. She works within the relational psychoanalytic frame and is a trained, certified transactional analyst. She works with transference and countertransference, family of origin and early attachment concepts. She is interested in public education on the differing professional services offered for emotional and mental health and training standards for psychotherapy. Jo has published one book and about to publish a second with Rutledge. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here today. I realised as I started to research for this interview that we were just going to get on like a house on fire. <laughs> so... You know, talking all about psychotherapy. It's one of my biggest passions in life. We're talking about proper psychotherapy, which I'm sure we'll get into later. So would you just share a little bit about yourself and what led you to becoming a psychotherapist?
0: Certainly. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I I didn't do it in an organised, structured way. I was in the corporate sector. Well, I, I probably was a bit burnt out, but I was more disillusioned. Uh, In those days, I don't know what you call it now, but in those days, we called it the glass ceiling. Women didn't do particularly well in in the corporate sector. So I'd got to general manager status and was bumping into all sorts of um, difficult things around trying to negotiate um, how to build the business that I was in at the time. So I was in the medical and uh, dental industry. And so I jumped out and... I did a little bit of consulting work here and there. And then I started to think, you know, what do I really enjoy? What do people say I'm good at? And that was always about people. I was, I was always good with the staff. I always enjoyed interacting with people. So I started exploring work in that area. And what I came up with was probably now it's called coaching, but then it wasn't called coaching, but mm-hmm. I was planning to burn, burnt out corporates like myself. And during that training, so I was studying social science, but during that time, I did an elective over the over the Christmas break to just get the degree done as quickly as I could, as you do. And I bumped into a psychotherapist running a training on on transactional analysis, mm-hmm. and she was a psychotherapist. And one day, she said, "So I'll show you actually how psychotherapy works. So we'll do we'll run a group." and and in that group a rather extraordinary thing happened it's probably something that stayed with me forever she asked this guy a question and in no time at all he was a 5 year old back in papua new guinea remembering a trauma that he'd had mm. and so she worked very intensely with that in this segment that we were doing mm. And when it was all over, we, of course, we were all shaken. No, none of us had had that experience before. But I thought, oh, I want to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: then I started the psychotherapy training and I started the psychotherapy training in transactional analysis because that was, that was that woman's training at that time.
1: Okay. So you've mentioned transactional analysis. I mentioned it in your bio and also just now you just talked about it. So for the women listening today and perhaps for therapists uh, who are also not familiar, would you share a little bit more about what transactional analysis actually is?
0: Yes, yes, certainly. Look, transactional analysis was developed by a man called Eric Byrne. Eric Byrne was a psychiatrist. He worked with traumatised patients. War veterans, and he started to notice particular themes coming out of traumatized, working with these traumatized men mostly. And so he developed transactional analysis. And what it is, it's a type of psychoanalytic theory and it's a method of a, of a therapy process where social transactions are analysed and they're analysed in an attempt to look at what the ego state of each person is. Many Transactional analysis actually has a lot of terminology that people would know. So that would be uh, the drama triangle, um, mm-hmm. parent, adult, child, ego state, there's quite a lot of language that we use every day that is 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 based in transactional analysis when we analyze the ego state that a person's in are they in their parent are they in their child, are they in their adult ego state, we're able to look at where the communication's coming from, so what part of that person is being triggered in that moment, and that helps us understand the behaviour of that person. So if someone's coming from their parent, they're going, you know, should, have to, must, got to, or to. Mm -hmm. If they're coming from their child ego state, they're probably really struggling with trying to put a sentence together Um, and, of course, our adult ego state is uh, where we're, you know, that's the current hard here and now, data. So, you know, it's a way of communicating and and, and understanding the way people work. That's it in simplicity. And I'd just like to say one more thing about transactional Mm -hmm. analysis as well, if you don't mind. Sure. It has four streams. So there's a training body for educational for counselling, for organisational coaching and for psychotherapy. So I did specifically the
1: psychotherapy training. Oh, okay. That sounds very similar to the way that I trained. They, they all kind of start off on the same path and then split off later on. Mm-hmm. I just want to go back because the people listening are, are people are suffering and who may be in need of therapy. So would you just say, I know you sort of talked about the parent, adult, child ego states, and I know that uh, certainly the women I work with in therapy would know that very well because we work with ego states and sub personalities for someone who has never really heard this term before how would you explain that what is an ego state i guess is the is the best mm, way yes, of putting that
0: a good question an ego state is a part of of how we function so it's like a microcosm within each of us and depending how we grow up in our family so I'm always looking at family of origin so if I'm looking at a a parent ego state I'm looking at the part of that person which as a small child has taken its messages Mm -hmm. from the parent Um, And and that's distorted, of course, because we're doing this quite young and we're doing it through the lens of a small child without a big picture of the world. Mm. Um, I'm very interested in the child ego state, obviously, because that's the interpretation of the world through a very small child. You, you, You probably know this, but five, six, seven, we've developed our script. In transactional analysis, we are always talking about the script because as humans, we write our world script, our life script around how we will live our life based on our experience of the world during those ages. Mm. So they're the microcosm parts of us that are, you know, like I want to say, well, we could say introjected or contaminated from our main carers, which would be mother, father, grandparents, and nanny, yep. if children have one those influences yeah
1: so it's the stuff that we internalize from our environment i think yes. also you know we look at um you know it can go on to school environment our culture and all those sorts of things can't it
0: absolutely yes and particularly the thing that i'm looking at or that you know yep. psychoanalytically
1: you're looking at is that very early interpretation early. yes yeah and the other one you mentioned was the drama triangle. So just to let people know what that is, uh, we're talking there about the perpetrator, rescuer and victim. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yep. So in preparation for this interview, I was reading your wonderful and much needed book, Delving Deeper. And in the book you write, daily I am left to wonder why we are not going back to the source of what has created a person's mental health issues as opposed to trying to fix it. In inverted commas, at the crisis end. But as human, that is what we do. I believe there are two main reasons this is not being done. Would you please share with our audience what those reasons are?
0: Yes. One of the things that we don't do is we're not looking at what causes mental health issues. Mm. We're perhaps doing it a little bit more. I feel hardened that our government health systems now are looking more at how children are treated, how children live in homes, you know, when there's things like, you know, domestic violence, what happens. But they're the kind of crisis situations. What we're looking at more, the standard home. Mm. A really good example of that would be someone can develop a. I'm often working with um, people who have grown up in homes that money wasn't an issue, food wasn't an issue, clothing wasn't an issue, Mm. education wasn't an issue, but it's about the availability of the parents. Mm. And if parents are preoccupied about earning money so that they can give children a good education, which is a a wonderful ethos, but there's a fine line in the sand between where that can tip over into the child experiences abandonment and repeated abandonment Mm. creates... Mental health issues. So that that's one of the concerns that I have. Yep. So the other thing that I'm concerned about mm-hmm. is the governments aren't consulting wide enough. They're not really looking at longer-term results. So in Australia, we legislated a Medicare rebate to psychology so that people could come for five to ten sessions and in that they would be given strategies with CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, and, of course, with people that have long-term or have had longer-term trauma or developmental trauma or abandonment or lack of attachment at the early stages of life. So people that you in know, some sort of rupture, our government systems aren't looking at how we help people recover from that. So mm. we're working within a kind of framework that speaks to what is happening right now. How do we manage what's happening right now? I'm going to say it again. I'm heartened that we do that. However, that doesn't stop people from the difficulties, like things like eating disorders, addictions. Mm self-injury, those things are much deeper and we need to go back and find out why that's happening, not trying to fix it. We need to go back and say, mm. okay, where did, this, where did this happen? And until mm. we do that, we're really never going to scratch the surface of the mental health, the worsening mental
1: health issues that we have around the world. What's interesting, because I think you know my colleague Kate Wotherspoon, she messaged me yesterday to say oh, have you seen the news that eating disorders are caused by genetics and it was all in the news yesterday, all, everyone raving about it and isn't this wonderful that we've got this solution now and that we might, might be able to give some kind of medication for them and I don't know, when I heard that I just felt so like we have got a long way to go. I hadn't heard that. I'm
0: glad I was so busy yesterday. That we would have destroyed.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's.
0: I, I think what's really disturbing is we're looking for a pill to fix something mm. that is created as a result of developmental deprivation. Yeah. And until we look at it like that, I mean, it's it's awful because we've got to look at parenting. We've got to look at mm. how is this children, how, how are these children experiencing the world? It's not through bad parenting. It's often through you know love and care and you know the desire to give the child everything. Mm. But there are some things missing and that's where we need to be looking, not for medication.
1: Yes, and so from I guess that leads very well into our next question. So from your perspective and many years of practice, what do you see as the causes of trauma and the resultant symptoms?
0: Mm, Well, I've kind of touched on that a little bit, but but more would be... You know, like someone who who is is, 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 is distracted. So I, I mentioned before, so a baby's born mm. and there are birth complications and so the mother needs to go to surgery or there's a problem for the baby and the baby needs to go into an incubator or whatever. Mm-hmm. These are life-threatening things. And I think one of the things that we're not really tuned into is what does that mean to the baby? If you imagine that a baby's sitting in a womb for nine months Mm. comes out into the cold wide world and mum's not there All uh, they're thrust into you know some sort of care mm. that's a developmental trauma for the child now when I work with people and oh, no, I had a lovely childhood you know wonderful fantastic <laughs> wonderful parents you're laughing you know you've heard it so mm-hmm. many times I, it, honestly I did the same thing when when We'll get to this further probably, but, Mm. you know, to train in psychotherapy, you need to have done your own therapy. Mm. And I remember my early sessions saying, oh, I was so lucky. I grew up on a farm, you know, had a wonderful life. We grew up with animals around us. And you come to find out that that was actually a really traumatic experience for me, not even necessarily because of who my parents were, Mm. but because living on a farm is very traumatic for a child, and I was a very sensitive child. Mm. So we really need to be looking at what is actually, what is the child being exposed to that could lead them to feel that the world is cold, harsh, dark, frightening, Mm. difficult, Basically, that's what we're looking at. I, I do work with a lot of young people more and more. When I first came into practice nearly 25 years ago, I was seeing older people. Now I'm seeing much younger people. Mm-hmm. Parents bring but children, late adolescent, early 20s, uh, self-referring yep. and work with a, eating disorders, alcohol and uh, a lot I have a lot of self-injury. And it's difficult because it's hard for the hospitals and the professionals to not be looking at the Mm behaviour because you do want to stop someone from starving themselves to death. You do want to stop someone from cutting themselves. You do want to take some of the alcohol away if you can. So I'm not saying that you don't come from that perspective but you must come from the perspective what's actually driving that? No one is going to stop cutting or, you know, dieting to death or, you know, drinking to death, gambling to death, sexing to death, unless they know why they're doing it. Mm. And that's really, really difficult because often people don't know. I work with people who are just going, What well, what 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 I don't know? I don't know. And you've got to keep working, listening to the stories, listening to the language, listening to what it is that each person is using as a way to cope with life because that's the language that you'll find, oh, right, so your parents moved 15 times before the time you were six Mm. or, oh, both parents had to work because, you know, they both had low incomes and they needed Two incomes to, and so you know, mm-hmm. you were more than actually a kid, you were left at home really young. What did that mean? I was, I realized I was terrified. Okay, so then we need to look at what does that terrified mean? Mm-hmm. There were only words we you find out what that experience is. So it's very much around going underneath the behavior, going underneath the awareness, and developing a lot of understanding about what that person's experience of their early
1: life was. And and one of the problems is, you know, we're talking about people suffering with eating issues. I know I've worked with a lot of girls who have come out of a uh, a couple of Sydney rehabs and some of this stuff has never been touched on it's literally just focusing on the food and ga- regaining weight and um, cognitive yeah. behavioral sort of um, managing your thoughts and stuff so it's I mean it's I've seen reports from a couple of the the, the rehabs it's, it's actually really distressing because I think the whole underworld that has been missed out here
0: it's such an important point I think one of the things we're not aware of and we need to be more thoughtful about if we can Mm. is that sometimes the the clinics actually re-traumatize so that process Mm. and 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 i'm careful about saying this because i have had to put people into eating disorder clinics because they needed to be forced to eat but when they come out The work that you have to do around the trauma that they experience in the forcing them to eat is is a secondary issue around dealing with it while they're in an eating disorder in the first place. So it is a very, very complex mire. Until we look at it as a complex mire, while we're looking at it as oh, look, there's this clinic, let's put them in there and, you know, we'll give them this and we'll make them eat. And so, you know, like the family are happy because they're out of the house and they're in a clinic and somebody's doing the hard yards, which is very distressing. The family's usually very traumatised by, you know, gamblers and cutters and drinkers and um, and eating disorders. Um, but we also need to be thoughtful about how we do both of those things at the same time. So I'm not an advocate of saying we don't use medication, we don't use clinics, we don't... I, I would like to see us use those things together. I would love to see... Look, we have to have criminals in prison, but criminals are people that have been, have been traumatised, seriously, yeah, developed right. traumatised and the, the corrective services reiterate that. So I would love to see psychotherapy groups. If you're going to be in jail for a couple of years, you're a captive audience. Let's give long-term psychotherapy groups uh, so that at least when you come out, you have a lot more awareness about why your
1: behaviour is what it is. Mm. I I guess this brings us to a really good question because we've mentioned psychotherapy many times already. What is psychotherapy? You're my first guess where I've really... Opened this up, I think. So, what is psychotherapy?
0: It's really interesting when you ask me that question, Jada, because I'm thinking, well, you know, I use the word psychotherapy and I do psychotherapy and I am a psychotherapist. And, oh gosh, what does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> if I had to really trim all the fat away and look at it, mm. psychotherapy is a way of trying to understand people's very early experiences and how those experiences formulate and develop into dysfunctional behaviours.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I'll weigh in on this as well because I haven't really talked about it yeah. yet either. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say it's, it's about deepening one's relationship with self and other. Oh, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think psychotherapy, just any sort of therapy really can sometimes get a bit of a stigma around it. But for me, it's not around um, mental illness, mental disorders, any of that kind of stuff. It's about building relationships.
0: Yes, you, you make two really important points in there if I can, could just jump in. The first thing sure. is that in the early days of my practice, people didn't tell anybody that they were in mm. psychotherapy. Very, very rare. Now, this kind of like in the last, I don't know, maybe eight to ten years, maybe even less than that, have this younger group of people coming in and they talk to their friends, they go off and they tell their friends about it and they come back and say, oh, you know, can will you see my friend? Well, that's a whole other area we won't go in today, but we yeah. don't see the family of the clients. But- yeah. But it's wonderful because then what I get the opportunity to do is to refer them on to a psychotherapist, you know, a psychotherapy-trained psychotherapist. Um, And so we get them into the right sort of care. So these younger people are talking about that. So there's much more happening around that. The other thing is that uh, until we accept that some of these diagnoses that we're working with every day, until we accept that there's longer-term work that needs to happen, we can't help people get recovery, and we have an instant gratification society that I want it and I want it now and if you can't give it to me now, I'm not going to stay in. I mean, I don't very often see a client that never comes back but I will see clients occasionally who say, this takes way too long and they will leave and some of those people will often come back So I think there is a place for us to be talking more about what psychotherapy is and that it is about understanding our own internal process. Mm. Perfect.
1: People listening to this podcast are all over the world. So in in it, I'll explain it a little bit. In Australia, we have a Medicare system where a portion of the um, fee is uh, refunded and it's it's very much medical model aligned. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about Medicare. So because of the Medicare Better Access Scheme, where some people suffering can get psychological services reimbursed, uh, many trainee therapists are abandoning classical psychotherapy trainings for social work and psychology degrees. And because often um, employment as a counselor or, or therapist in Australia, they typically advertise for people who can also get Medicare. So that's basically psychologists and social workers. So the choice in psychotherapy trainings in Australia is dwindling by the day. And I see it as a real tragedy for our field and for potential clients of psychotherapy. So, can you please explain to our listeners how psychotherapy, and I'm going to repeat what you just said, with a psychotherapist is different, for example, to coaching, counselling, social work, and psychology. So, how is psychotherapy different from those other disciplines?
0: It, it is a really big question, yeah. and it's one of the things that I, when somebody comes to me and is, and I'm just in the consultative phase where I probably won't see them because I I can't take on many more clients. I I will ask them a lot of questions around, well, what have you had done? Mm. And I think most of these people would agree. So I think if you look at social work and psychology, their training is very much around trying to develop strategies so that's why their training is called cognitive behavioural therapy. So you're using uh, cognitions, you're trying to create cognitions to change behaviour and, and that's great. Very, as we've talked about, it is very surface work. It's not about going back and finding out what caused the problem. So social work and, and psychology are very much around around CBT. Counseling comes from a much more emotional perspective. You know, again, everything has a place. It's not something's better than something else. But what I say to people is if something isn't working, then you need to be looking further. So sometimes people will go into counseling. I think one of the really lovely things about counseling is it's, it's fabulous for grief. Mm. people don't want it they don't want a strategy they don't want you to be telling you how to get better they just want to be able to cry and tell you how awful they feel and the terrible thoughts that they have and the anger that they have and whatever and that somebody can hold that so mm. counseling a well-trained counselor will do that um, and coaching is a really interesting tag line now mm. because in a lot of the schools they've changed the school counselor's name to school coach because oh, really? children, yes because it doesn't have that stigma yeah like okay so um with coaching what happens coaching is we really look at coaching at this point in terms of uh organizational so that is that somebody might be struggling in business and so you know how do they better run their business how do they better um look at their relationships with their staff how do they better look at relationships with their bosses or management of, of any description and so coaching is about trying to help people work through their their business day. Now, when I say that, all of the professions merge around the edges. And I'd also like to say that, and this might you might be going to ask me about this a little bit more later, but in case you don't, I just want to mention that often a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a social worker, a counsellor, a coach, will do extra training so that they are qualified in more than one field. So yep, I, yep. I, I do need to say that because, you know, very much so in America, uh, a psychologist will often go in and do the full analytical training so they yep. will work as, 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 a, as an analyst. What I say to people is you then you say to that person that advertises one, two or three tags, you know, bylines, what are you going to be doing on me?
1: <laughs> Good question.
0: <laughs> what, how are you going to be treating me? So that's how I would see those differences, Jodie.
1: Mm, that's a really good question. One of the reoccurring questions that I get in online counselling and therapy groups is that trainee counsellors often ask, "Can I call myself a psychotherapist without actually training in psychotherapy?" So when therapists like my uh, when therapists reply yes, because it isn't a register, registered title in Australia. So in the US, it is registered. So um, just just so that people know it's not registered, you know, it's not a, um, is that what you call it, a registered title? Yes. Yes. And then I answer, no, because you are not trained in psychotherapy. So there's always a backlash towards towards psychotherapists. Why the need to be so precious? Why be precious about the terms psychotherapist and psychotherapy? Why is it important that we are precious about those terms? I mean, I know myself that I am very precious about them. <laughs> so...
0: I don't want to think I'm precious about it, but perhaps I am. But if I am, it's because I care about the client. And I think that was the sole reason that I wrote the book. It's the only reason I wrote the book is I feel like what people need to know and I didn't go in depth into what a social worker is or what a psychologist is what a counselor is and, and what a psychiatrist is mm. uh, because I didn't really feel like that was my area what I really went into is what a psychotherapist is because what I want people to understand is if they're looking for longer term work if they have had I don't know about you Jody, but I just saw a new client this week who's seen seven other practitioners. Mm. Now, that's not uncommon for me to experience. That tells me that there's something wrong with the system. Mm. Mm. And so I, I, I think what we are obligated to do is to work within the field that we're trained. And I say this in my book, you know, a a gynecologist doesn't call themselves a dermatologist, you know, (laughs) and a doesn't call themselves a psychiatrist. And I think what has happened is the word psychotherapy has been bandied around and there's no real identification and you're right about Australia. But, you know, in New Zealand what they did was the government said, ah, psychotherapists, can they do harm? Ah, yes, they can. We better look at what they're doing. Mm. And so what they did was they investigated the training, they terrorised the membership, they pulled it apart, and so now they're registered. Now, the problem in Australia, and I'm not sure about other countries, I think Europe, there's a fairly clear boundary around psychotherapy. Mm. I think Australia there isn't. I think in America it's quite blurry as well. Mm. Canada now has a registration body for psychotherapists. So it's happening everywhere. We're a little bit behind the eight ball here, Um, but the the, the term psychotherapist is identified within the training body and within the therapist Mm -hmm. so that what the person knows is they're going to get some longer-term work. They're going to know that their psychotherapist has a prior training, that they have then trained in a particular modality in psychotherapy, and probably that they're going to be looking at
1: their family of origin. Mm. This is really important. And just for the record, I mean, I, I trained for two years of a psychology degree. I've done a social work degree. counseling diploma, which was the equivalent to a degree, and psychotherapy. Uh, The only two that were similar in that were the counseling and the psychotherapy. And then after you finished the diploma in mind, you then went to become a psychotherapist, which was additional training. And like you said earlier, there is nothing wrong with psychology training, with social work training, but it is not psychotherapy, in in my opinion. It it is a very, 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 both of them are very different training. The reason I am precious about it is for exactly the reason you say that it's because when a client goes looking for a psychotherapist they should get a psychotherapist <laughs> because it's a very different level of training and we're going to talk more about that soon and how it's different and why that's important so
0: one more thing about that before mm. we move away from it, but that were you know registered title which I think is an important question that you raise, mm. is that our body in Australia lobbied the government around Registering counsellors and psychotherapists, and and it was rejected because the government doesn't believe that they well, they don't want to create another registered body. So they've got registered bodies and they're saying that we will not register another body. And so it is actually very difficult. And so what the government told our peak body was we want you to be a self-registered body. Mm-hmm. And so that's been developing over a period of time. That body has struggled to put clear lines between what is counselling and what is psychotherapy. Yep. because in the name that body calls themselves counselling and psychotherapy. Yep. But I do believe that there is a much clearer delineation happening in the future. So I feel optimistic about it, but in Australia mm. we probably never will have a registration
1: for psychotherapy. So just to be clear, does, are you saying that we will probably never get Medicare as psychotherapists?
0: I, I don't imagine that we will, and but I don't think that's because of the term. I think it's more because of the cost, yeah, okay. the I, I write about this in the book as well, but the mm. when the government rolled out the Medicare um, Better Access Scheme, mm. they planned it for five years and they'd run out of funding in nine months. And um, in my book, I talk about an interview with the, the then health minister mm-hmm. where he said that this Medicare rebate that they give for mental health issues is bigger than anything else they do in mental health. So. Wow it's it's blown way out of proportion and there's a part of me that's excited about that because the government now realizes how how bad Mm. it is how serious you know the serious issues that they're looking at but i don't think they would ever be able to find the funding to Mm. then include counselors in there and psychotherapists in there i might be wrong Mm. i might be wrong but i but the research that i've done the conversations that i've had Mm -hmm. i just think that that's something we shouldn't be hanging our hat on Mm -hmm. And, and but there are so many people out there you know we all work on sliding scale so it is affordable
1: yeah. And the gap for you often is the same as a psychotherapist anyway. That's that's my experience. So Excellent. Yes. <laughs> as I have noticed uh, with our peak body uh, that they're starting the different colleges now too, which I really liked. So there's a college, so we're talking about PACFA. And if you're looking for a proper psychotherapist if you go to the pack for website i'll link to it in the show notes there's a list of therapists on there and we are also being asked to join different colleges now which i quite liked because it's making sure that people have at least had some therapy which never used to be part of the registration process before so good to Mm -hmm. see that they've included that now I'm going to
0: talk about that
1: now or later. We'll talk about that later. So um, there's one other thing too. In your book, you also talk about the difference between psychotherapy and techniques such as CBT and EMDR. Can you just briefly say a little bit? Often a lot of people say, I I provide EMDR therapy, I provide um, cognitive behavioural therapy. What's Mm. the difference between psychotherapy and those techniques?
0: They're more interventions, So we're looking at doing something longer. What does somebody need in a crisis? They need a strategy. So we're going to go to CBT. Uh, Someone comes in, I'll see someone and they will have perhaps come from a country of war or they had been in a bad car accident or airplane crash or whatever and they have a very specific trauma around that. So we'll do some EMDR eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing that stands for. Yep. And so then you're doing an intervention within your psychotherapy. So it's a technique, but it's really interesting. In America now they've started to call EMDR psychotherapy. And I'm hoping that there are some people that are that are monitoring that and that that, that will change because EMDR isn't a psychotherapy. It's a short-term training to mm. learn how to use a technique to use in a very specific
1: situation. Yeah, it's, it's such an important point. But I hadn't seen that written until I saw it in your book. I've always mm. thought even CBT, it's not therapy. It's it's a technique that we use in therapy amongst a yeah. whole lot of other techniques, but on its own it's not a complete therapy in, in my opinion. Yes, so. it's
0: not a, it doesn't have a theoretical underpinning Mm. it's
1: therapeutic Mm. and just to be fair all of these techniques are very very useful we're not saying that they're not it's just that they're not psychotherapy so I'd love to shift now to talk about people who are suffering so I guess let's let's help them understand for people listening who have never had psychotherapy let's help them understand how it works so You write in your book, uh, I do not work a few sessions here and a few sessions there, but by the time the client finds their way into my practice, they've already done that with many other practitioners. So why don't you work, come when you feel bad here and there? Well,
0: again, let's go back to that conversation around CBT. That's Mm. what CBT is for. That's great. So if you don't feel so great, you want to go and do one or two sessions and you feel better, that's fantastic. Mm. If you're looking for work where you just want to do a few sessions and, feel, and and you feel better, that's great. The people that find their way into into my practice and obviously your practice, Jodi, are people have done this, but they still have symptoms. They mm. still have you know the the behaviours. They're concerned that doing something here and there isn't working. So if you're not trained to be a psychotherapist and you do long term work, mm. that just means you're doing long term counselling. Yep if you're trained in psychotherapy, what you're actually doing is you're going in to find out about why that behaviour or why that dysfunction is or why that distress is there. Now, if you leave extra time between sessions, so I'm going to use if someone comes every two weeks, I, I refuse to see somebody that only will come every two weeks. Mm. Unless somebody is is terminating at the end, the the work is done, we've been working together for years and we're terminating, then we'll go, you know, two every two weeks, a monthly, whatever. Because what happens is we open up an entry into that person's unconscious process. If you leave it a long time, that clams up and then you're always trying to reopen that Mm. knowledge you're always trying to find that knowledge and it's nearly it, will it just you're really doing long term counseling because the road to the early trauma is blocked if you're not seeing someone on a regular basis think about you know freud he he saw clients every day Uh, five times a week Mm -hmm. now I would love to have done my therapy like that (laughs) but you know from a time and a money perspective that's prohibitive for most people Mm. I often say to clients when I'm contracting I say a couple of things one of the things I say is when you least want to come is when you most need to come that means that your resistance is getting to be stronger because the unconscious process is aware that we're, we're onto it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we know good point. what's going on. So people automatically want to run away and hide. So when you least want to come is when you most want to come, when you most need to come. And so the other thing around appointments is I'll say to people, when we really start to get near the early wounds, we might need to be meeting two or three times a week. I have clients I see three times a week. I have clients I see twice a week and they've always done that. I have clients that come weekly and I will work like that. It's Mm. not ideal, but I will work like that. And from a money perspective and a time perspective, that's a nice balance. But anything less than that, you're chasing something that you probably will
1: never have access to. Mm. Yeah, you raised some really good points. So I just wrote some notes while you were talking. I think for me, what it always reminds me of is the strange situation, the Mary Ainsworth uh, strange situation, the attachment. And I always think about how when the mother leaves the room and then comes back, the children are either um, clingy or they're avoidant or they're um, ambivalent. And it's kind of like that with therapy. If you don't have, I mean, that happens anyway, it will stir up attachment injuries. And that's what we're predominantly working with in therapy. But if I'm diving deep with someone and and bringing all this stuff to the surface, and then just let them out in the world for a couple of weeks, when they come back, it's either, I think these attachment patterns are really playing out even larger, but also, it's really hard to get back into what we've been talking about. So I just want to say that.
0: You're talking about something very important there, Jodie, and and that's the transference and the counter-transference and particularly the transference is that if we do let people take, you know, weeks between sessions, you're right, we're feeding into their exact attachment style Mm. so they don't have to find a way to stay attached to the therapist. And people say, oh, well, you know, you create a dependence. And I go, that's where the recovery is. <laughs> recovery is only in the attachment. Oh, There's I know. the attachment. So you're right, it is all about the attachment.
1: Yeah, and we'll come back to that. Now, the other thing was is that eating disorders in Australia uh, now get forty sessions of Medicare because they need long term therapy. I mean, forty sessions a year is fantastic, but if you are not trained to work long term, what are you you doing? You're counselling for those, yeah, which is supportive and it's nice, but it's not psychotherapy.
0: But that raises another question too. So why eating disorders? Why don't people who do self-injury mm. get 40 sessions? Why don't people who do, you know, drugs and alcohol get 40 sessions? Why I agree.
1: Why
0: do do gambling get, you know, because they're just the behaviours. They're all exactly. the behaviours. Underneath that, it's exactly the same thing. It's, you know, like something okay. happened with developmental trauma.
1: Yeah, but they're not looking at that. Look, it's expected that clients will... Be curious about why weekly therapy, which is what we've just been talking about. But I know from seeing many discussions in psychology, social work, counselling, and psychotherapy groups, and of course from people who do seek out therapy, there's going to be a lot of objections about weekly therapy as the gold standard. And like you, I often work uh, two to three times a, work, a week with people. So I'd love it if we could help our listeners have a better understanding about this. And so what I thought we'd do is look at some of the objections if you would be willing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the first one that I see a lot, the client should be self-determining and determine the session frequency.
0: Right. So the, so the issue for that around that for me is that if you have someone doing a destructive behaviour, that's coming from their child ego state. So if you have a child ego state, you don't let the child rule the show. You have to be a potent therapist and so you need to create a container. And when you're saying, oh, self-determination and, you know, like decide on the the session frequency, what you're doing is assuming that every minute of every day you have that child, that person in an adult ego state. Now Mm. that's impossible for for all of us. Mm. So you can't do work in the child ego state If you're talking about self-determination, that's much more coaching work. That's much more thinking, cognitive behavioural work. You're never going to be working with the part of the the child ego state that's damaged around, as we talked about, one of the things before, around around attachment. Mm. You can't do that if you're self-determining. You have to create the container for the
1: client. It's the only way that they will recover. I agree. Really good point. So the next one, and I've been called a mean girl because I make my clients come weekly. (laughs) It says you are obviously greedy and you're making clients come to line your own pockets. So what I would say to that is every person
0: that works is working because they need that money to do something to live, Mm -hmm. whether it's to pay a mortgage, have a lifestyle, buy groceries, pay their rates, run their car. Why is it that with being a psychotherapist, mm. you're not entitled? So maybe people might say, well, you know, you charge more for an hour than some other professional does. But mm. we can only work a limited amount of hours because it's such intense work. Oh, you exactly. can only see four or five clients. And so you have to create a fee that allows you a living to be able to stay in the field.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, and- any professional who, anyone in our in our profession who's thinking that getting people to come weekly is greedy is quite short-sighted around what the work actually
1: is. To me, it, I actually get really, really cross because I think part of the way that I work is that I you know we talk about in psychosynthesis empathic love and a psychotherapy of love, and I absolutely love my clients to back to, back to health and to be accused of being greedy because i 'm actually making them come weekly. I just find that so offensive and if we go back to self determination, one of the things and i 'm sure you do this as well at the beginning of therapy, there is a very lengthy conversation around how therapy works. And the the potential client at that point has a choice as to whether they want to engage with that or not. And it's you know, it's not like I'm there twisting their arm and saying you know I mean obviously you, know, you don't want to scare people and, and, and about the length of therapy and stuff like that but I'm very honest and I'm very clear about why it's important to come weekly. And of course, I need to make a living, but it has very little to do with that. It's more around client safety and I just believe it to be a better uh, way of working. It's a it's it's going to provide better results long term too
0: you're absolutely right you know the model that wasn't developed you know getting money the model was developed around how much does a person need Mm. in terms of attachment and contact for recovery and it's fairly intense very
1: intense and actually what i noticed too and i I want to say this i I have had a few therapists over time and when i did work with a therapist who had like this booking system where you booked in Oh, my God, my anxious attachment style just went into overdrive. I always felt like I was hustling for my spot. And mm-hmm. and in the end, I ended up ghosting her because I, I didn't feel like I could trust. Mm.
0: Yes, you raise a really important point, Jodie, because one of the things that I do is I make sure that each client has the same time Every week, I won't give that time no. to anybody else. That's their time. That's a part of the attachment. That's a part of them trusting in the work, trusting the therapist that you're always going to be there. And that is their time. People become very, very possessive about that to the point where, when they go on holidays, they'll say, "What are you going to do with my time while I'm gone? Are you going to give it to somebody else?" <laughs> Which you know I'm quite entitled to, but you know that you know that's a really important part of holding them. That's a really important part of the containment and. There was, um, I did supervision years ago with a with a guy who said, "If I can't give someone a regular time, I won't see them." Exactly. Now, sometimes I will say to people, "I want to work with you a regular time. I don't have a regular time." In the time slot that you're looking at, are you prepared to come at different times until we can get you something? And so yes. that's a very yes. early contract around being more flexible, but them also knowing that I am going to find them a space, and and that always happens. It's mm-hmm. it's odd that you know something pops up. Yeah,
1: it, you know, it's really important to talk about, and one of the things that I do too is, and and for people to know that uh, people who work the way that Joe and I do, that hour is your hour, and. I will often sit, you know, especially if a client has had to pay for the hour when you know they've obviously they've missed it or the the transports failed or something's happened they're sick. If someone pays for that hour, that is your hour, and I typically, I've actually my supervisor, my psychoanalytic supervisor suggested something really great was to ask the client how they would like you to spend that hour. And so one of my clients had me reading Jane Austen, and it was <laughs> it was fantastic because when um, I can't, obviously can't give too much away but when this person would come back after uh, being sick or whatever we were able to really dive deep into the characters and how that actually was relevant to their life you know and it's not about being greedy it's not about any of those things it's a holding Donald Winnicott says uh, the holding environment yes
0: and he's technically our guru now oh
1: he is yeah (laughs) at last (laughs) Uh, for people to recognize yeah so another objection is this is old school psychoanalysis the therapist is too rigid and this is another therapist who has said this the therapist is too rigid and making clients come weekly has no place in the modern world where people have busy lives
0: well that's you know there's a couple of parts in there i'm going to go to the last part first Mm. Um, coming weekly has no place in the modern world where we have busy lives. It's really interesting, isn't it, that people can spend hours on their phone, or you know, people can be spending <laughs> hours in traffic or hours in shopping centres, and what you to so an hour or 50 minutes is too difficult to. I know. Uh, Again, they're the people that are not motivated to do the work. I don't think that any client I work with would think about it like that. So I think there is something seriously missing in terms of education around what it means to give yourself that window of time each week or several times a week. And how much, that, how
1: much can benefit from that? Well, uh, worry, sorry, Joe. worryingly, this was actually a lot of therapists in therapy groups say this, that if someone says, I only let clients come weekly, you are too rigid. Who has time for that? This is actually, okay. I, I need to rewind. It's a lot of social workers and psychologists and counsellors. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's psychotherapists.
0: Look, I don't think it is either... Well, they wouldn't be a psychotherapist if they were thinking like that. There's another line in the sand.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: Because if you think about the training that a social worker or a psychologist might have that's absolutely what they would be thinking into. They don't, the, mm. their, their, their training modality is not about the stability of the client week to week. It's about what does the client need? Okay, so they need this or they need that or we give them this, give them that. Yes, if they don't want to come, that's fine, doesn't matter. So it's a very different philosophy. It's a very different ethos, a very different training program that they're in. And I don't think you can bring those two things together I can't even have an argument with someone around that. I would say, oh, okay, so that's the way you work. Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because to work from a psychoanalytic perspective or, you know, a more analytic perspective, then you would only be working that way. Exactly. You're not even thinking, you know, you spend nine years training knowing that that's the only way you work with a client.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Look, there is something around the old school psychoanalysis. I think there's a lot of, older analysts who who, who see that, that really, really rigid Freud sitting behind the client, the client laying on the couch, coming five times a week. I think that is old school psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and very rigid. But there's been a development in the last, I don't know, they, they would say 40 years, but I think it's more like 20. Mm-hmm. So you've probably heard of relational psychoanalysis. Yes. And so this is very much around the, the analyst and the or the psychotherapist and the client being very much so that so so, so the, the psychotherapist would say you know I'm thinking this or I'm feeling this or I'm wondering this so sharing much more of their thinking or treatment planning with the client relational doesn't mean you're going out to have a coffee with them or you're oversharing your personal life with them um, but but the really really old psychoanalysis I, I think there is a waning I, mm-hmm. I think there's a place mm-hmm. for it I was, tra- I was trained very rigidly and I must admit I was very excited about what happened with clients as I moved to a more relational psychoanalytic
1: model mm-hmm. so I just
0: wanted to make that that
1: you know yeah. that statement. exactly so and the last one you touched on briefly so going weekly and this is again this came from a therapist group going weekly mm-hmm. and long-term creates dependency Yes. So and, so and clients worry about that too.
0: Yes, clients do worry about that. And, and I'll tell you who else worries about that, parents who bankroll their, their children's psychotherapy. Mm. They worry about that tendency because what you're doing is you're looking at the child's experience in the home. Yeah. And when you do that, parents are very very exposed and so then they see their children more attached to you than them now I will often bring a parent in in front of the child or the young person and say look these are the concerns this is what's happening and I will talk to the young person before that and say look I think we need to bring a parent in and I think we need to have this conversation Mm. and we do and I always say that the dependency is important because this person is only going to recover if they completely and utterly trust me. So mm. it's it's about re reattaching the attachment that didn't happen. So repairing that 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 rip in attachment and that only comes from creating some level of dependency. But I have to say again, going weekly and long term creates dependencies from the other paradigms of of, of the profession, like like the social work or the the coaching or the, the mm. psychology or psychiatry, absolutely they would see it like that. And it's mm. important that they do because they're not trained to be dealing with the, the longer-term attachment. They're not trained to do that. So, of course, they want to avoid that at all costs. And they have to because if they don't, Discourage that, then if they do create some sort of dependency, they're not trained to deal with it, and, and, and the client will inevitably end up with another human wound.
1: Yeah, so I guess I want to say to people listening, to especially clients, that it is a normal part of therapy to become attached to your therapist and joe you mentioned something earlier that i didn't come back and ask for clarification about but you mentioned transference and counter-transference and Mm -hmm. i wonder if you might just briefly say because it's kind of along the line of, and by dependency we're actually talking about needs too aren't we we're talking about dependency Mm -hmm. needs yes so in terms of transference would you just tell people what that is
0: transference is very much around the client having experiencing you as they may experience another member of their world and then they will act that out toward you so when somebody is saying i don't want to see you ever again i hate you <laughs> you know it, it's it's mean, just it's it's beautiful it's a really precious it piece is. of information it means that there's somebody so I may have I may have done a facial expression I may have had a tone I may have used a word that's triggered them and they've experienced me in that moment as someone else and they're treating me as they're treating that other person so transference is a really really important part it's very informative if you can sit with and this is really good working with borderlines. I quite I get a lot of satisfaction out of working with borderline diagnosed clients because well, a lot of people don't like working with them because they're very, very demanding. But I think it's rich and it keeps you on your toes because they're always projecting onto you. They're always seeing something about you that they absolutely hate. And if you can stay with that, they have the opportunity to recover. So, so transference is a very important, I would say, radar or readout mm-hmm. that you can use to enhance the work and understand your client. So, if if someone you know, if someone says to, I have a I have a friend that's a psychologist, and she said, I don't know, she says, I don't know how you do that, you know, blah blah came in and said, I hate you, I hate that you went on holidays, and I said. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm. So you missed our work. You really struggled without, you know, coming to your sessions regularly, and you know. So there's really there's something so important in that. Yes, and you can learn about it, but but you don't you don't know how to do it until you're doing it in the session. <laughs> exactly,
1: and until which we're going to get to, you've actually had your own transference onto your own therapist, which I I know I did. So. Yes. Um, so for people listening today you know our audience today really is aimed at people with a history of early childhood trauma struggling with disordered eating chronic low self-worth how do you recommend they go about finding a rigorously trained psychotherapist
0: Mm, I'm so dogged about that it often gets me into trouble I've put it in my book I'll put it on my website I always say to people if you're going to go into psychotherapy it's probably going to be the biggest outlay that you ever have. It'll be bigger than ever buying a house and you're not going to, unlikely you're going to buy the first house you see. Mm. So you're going to want to interview your psychotherapist. Now, somebody told me recently that they were interviewed by a potential client and it irritated them no end. And I said, well, it's really important that you support mm. this because that's someone that's educated. And I didn't want to say, maybe they read my book. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want to ask several questions. questions. Yeah. You want to ask them about their training. So, so what? So, what is your training? So, what you want to hear them say is, "Look, I, I have a primary degree, and and you want the primary degree to be in something to do with the humanities. So, it can be, could be social work, could be psychology, um, could be social science, like mine, could be counselling. There's a whole range of things that it could be. Mm. But what you want to hear them say is, and then I did a four-year training, or three to four-year training." in a specific psychotherapy training. yeah, uh, And that's, that's really important. If somebody hasn't done psychotherapy training, they're not a psychotherapist. Now, the other thing that's important for me is that they're in clinical supervision. Mm-hmm. You must include clinical supervision regularly so that someone with more seniority or has trained in... to be a supervisor, is looking at your work. Really, really important functions of of being a psychotherapist. But I think the line in the sand for me Mm -hmm. is that your psychotherapist has to have done their own therapy. So one of the things that Jung says, Carl Jung says, is that you can only take your clients as deep as you have been. So if you have somebody that has an eating disorder, they have a very early trauma and if you have not dealt with your own early issues you can't take that client as deeply as you would, mm. you would like to you can't if you're if you haven't trained in the psychotherapy you can only work at it with a sur- surface level but even if you've done a minimal psychotherapy training or even you've done the full psychotherapy training if you haven't done your own therapy you will never be able to work in, in those deeper regions that clients mm. need for recovery mm. and that's a very controversial issue at the moment and it it depends what country you're in how they stipulate what is your own therapy so in New Zealand I think their requirement is that you do 250 hours which would probably work out to be about five years mm. I, I think for me that would be a minimum mm. absolute mm. minimum
1: we are talking about a classic psychotherapy training and and typically what that is is that the therapist chooses a modality that they really feel aligned to so Joe did transactional analysis. For me it was psychospiritual, which was psychosynthesis. Other people might go down a somatic pathway or an art therapy. So there's lots of gestalt. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, I just find this type of psychotherapy training so rich and deep and juicy. And typically these kind of trainings will I don't think they're actually allowed to say you have to be in therapy. But uh, I know I know when I trained some people were even asked to take a year out to go and do an extra year of personal work before they were allowed to continue with the training. And Mm. also the minimum age was 30 back then. And I know nowadays anyone can kind of get in. Mm. So yeah, really do your research. So what can someone seeking psychotherapy expect in that first session? So for some, I know myself, I was absolutely terrified, you know, the first Mm. time I went to see my therapist, what can they expect? I tend to spend the first part
0: of the session finding out why they're there. Mm. So, you know, what's made you pick the telephone up or send me a text or an email or whatever it is these days? What is it that has has made you come? And the people will tell me that little story and I will try to understand that. So I'll spend a bit of time pulling that apart, you know, like kind of doing doing a an investigation. So I won't, I won't just go, oh, yes, 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 okay, and then what and then what? So I'll ask questions so somebody said, well, I keep having this reoccurring desire to kill myself mm-hmm. i have this reoccurring mm-hmm. desire to you know not eat i have this reoccurring you know sense of you know depression mm-hmm. and so then i will investigate a little bit about you know so, so what happens how does that feel how does that affect your life what's going on and then i'll spend the next part of the session which i always feel is really important and that's explaining what I would do in terms of psychotherapy. So Mm. by then I would have understood if they had had other treatments and um, how those other treatments were for them, whether it was medication, CBT, whatever it was. And I'll say, well, this is how I work. I will be wanting to look more deeply at where those behaviours or feelings come from. That usually means we'll be looking at, you know, your family or your early life. We're not just going to launch back there. I want to know how you live. I want to know how those things impact you daily. I'm not, but but I'm always really honest. I will always say, I am not going to send you out of this room with a strategy. I can't do that. I'm not trained to do that. I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't be doing you a favour if I tried to give you a strategy. So if you're looking for someone that wants a strategy, then I'm not your person. And, and I'll mm. say to them, look, sometimes I might say to you, look, why don't you journal between the next session? Mm. Or what do you think about having a conversation with someone about? So I might make those sorts of suggestions, but I'm certainly not giving them strategies. So my my first initial session would have those two parts to it. And the final piece is the contract. You know, my time, um, my cost, um, the expectation that they would come, you know, every, every week, mm. those sorts.
1: Yeah, perfect.
0: I think the sad thing for me, Jody, in in my answer to that is that most of the people that I see know that something's wrong and there have been many people, many practitioners to try to find a resolution Mm. and they haven't been able to. So I don't think this is about taking a leap of faith. I think this is actually about people going, what can I do to help this issue? Mm. It's devastating when someone sits in front of you and says, well, you're the seventh you're the fifth, you're the eighth mm. you know, practitioner I've seen. And, and I will go through with them and I will say, okay, so who did you see? Do you know what sort of work they did? What happened yep. there? And, and it's a really lovely debrief process for them around them understanding. Um, and then when they, when they understand what psychotherapy is, they understand why that didn't work.
1: I guess what are the benefits of psychotherapy? So what do you see as the benefits for me, that's a
0: complex and simple answer. The simple answer is that you would want to be experiencing an alleviation of the symptoms that you have. Yeah. Now, the thing I do say to people is it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because when you go into what has caused that trauma, mm-hmm. then your people are going to feel a lot worse than they ever did. But we're able to talk about that and people know about that and, and they'll move into it. Now, of course, the benefit of psychotherapy is that you will get a relief of symptoms. So you, I wouldn't be doing the work, you wouldn't be doing the work, they wouldn't be coming in, we wouldn't be taking their money if there wasn't a relief of symptoms.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: How long that takes is very dependent on, mm-hmm. is, I, I suppose, a direct correlation with, you know, how much damage you're dealing with. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a to really good point. Right. So we're hearing a lot about somatic psychotherapy. You know, the last few years I've spent some time training, you know, all my CPD has probably been in somatic. But I'm noticing a lot of somatic trauma therapists saying that talk therapy is old school. Is there still a place for talk therapy?
0: Yes. You just want to kind of someone to say what you already know. (laughs) I think that that's saying different strokes for different folks. Now, Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of people that would not be able to work in somatic psychotherapy and I Mm -hmm. think perhaps if uh, somatic psychotherapy is on the move up, I mean I'm not in that loop so I don't don't know that, Mm -hmm. but if it's on the move up, it means that there's something that people are connecting with. And it is a powerful psychotherapy. But if you've got a if you've got a schizoid client, they're not going to want to do somatic psychotherapy. They're going to want to talk. They have to talk. It's never old school. Narrative will never ever be old school because it is investigating for with someone about what's happening for them. And they want to have a lot of input and a lot of discussion around what what that means. And I think Asking about, can it re-traumatise people? Look, it absolutely can. I mean, that's one of the things about EMDR. Even Bessel van der Kolk said when he did his first EMDR session, and I was out at Westmead when he did the first one way back in the 90s, and he had a video of working with someone and he stopped the video and he said, yes, re-traumatised, however continue watching. And so, yes, sometimes you do need to go to the trauma Mm -hmm. to relieve the trauma, to release the trauma. And so when the person holds the trauma experience in their body, it's been exacerbated. And once you can get in and talk about it and understand it, you get a release. And that can happen whether you're doing somatic psychotherapy or whether you're doing talk therapy. It is such a relief to tell your story. And it's difficult because for a lot of practitioners who aren't trained as psychotherapists and haven't done their own work it's very difficult to hear those painful stories and I think that's where a lot of that comes from I think a lot of practitioners don't want to hear that because they can't recover from some of the horrid stories that they have to hear so that's what you know people don't...
1: I have never thought of that that is a really 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 good point because we are sitting with the deepest suffering and you're right it's only through working through your own suffering that you can can absolutely do that That's right. so your book delving deeper who is it aimed at is it for clients is it for therapists is it for both
0: a oh, whole lovely question it's certainly not for therapists because I think some of my peers have bought the book They're excited about reading it and I never heard another thing from them and they don't speak to me because really? I do <laughs> I loved it Yes, because you're a psychotherapist. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> Line in the sand and people don't like that. Like you said earlier, you know, there is a there is a division, there is a turf fight, there is a and when somebody says, Look, this is what psychotherapy is and this is what psychotherapy isn't, if you're a practitioner that's calling yourself a psychotherapist and, and you don't meet the requirement requirements that I keep rabbiting on about in the book, you are going to be affected by the book. So I solely wrote the book for the public. I spent a lot of time with New South Wales Health. I spent a lot of time trying to create an awareness within the government body. And I realized at one point, there needs to be the groundswell. The ground, It needs to come from the people. And so I wrote the book so that people would ask the question, why haven't we got psychotherapy? Where is psychotherapy? Why can't mm. I get it? What is it? So it has to come from the people. So it is solely for the people on the ground, certainly not the profession.
1: <laughs> I'm going to stand up and say it, but I think the profession needs to read it because when I read it, I was just so like, oh, my God, where have you been all my life, Joe? <laughs> so.
0: Well, if you're a professional and you read it, brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love a review from a professional.
1: <laughs> yes, I will definitely do that. I know you've got a blog and some other wonderful resources on your website. If someone out there listening today wants to reach out for psychotherapy with you or if they want to re- read your online offerings, where do they find you?
0: Yes, very simple. It's my name, com. That you'll find everything there. You'll find you can download the ebook. You can buy a hard copy from there. You can um, send me a, an, an email from there. Um, and you can also, for people in, in Sydney, you can also buy the book at uh, Glee Books. They also stock the book.
1: Oh, good. We love a good uh, independent little bookstore. So Glebe Books, Mm -hmm. is it? Now, you very kindly offered one copy of your book to give away. So I'm wondering how we might do that. Um, I'll tell you what. How about if uh, after listening to this episode, if you go to iTunes and review Joe's episode, take a screenshot and send it to me, and I will draw the names randomly out of the hat and give one of those to Jo so that she can probably send you a, uh, an e-copy or something like that. Jo, is that correct? Of the... I'll, send, I'll send a signed hard copy, wherever oh, i goes. Oh, that's very nice. Oh, very good. Okay. So review Jo's episode on iTunes. Take a screenshot, send it to me. You can send it to Gale at bigpond.com and then I will pass that on to Joe. So that's very kind of her. So we've reached an end. We've we've run over time, but um I don't care. <laughs> so I just think this is such an important conversation. For years I've called this the bastardization of psychotherapy. <laughs> so <laughs> <It's> nice term. <laughs> and so it's really, really lovely to speak to someone who um You know, you really know your stuff, Joe. And I think my, my main reason for being very, very strict about this is because for me, we are dealing with people who have had such traumatic histories and they deserve to get the treatment that they are expecting or that they need. Yes,
0: absolutely. Jodie, thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to talk about this topic that obviously I'm passionate about and you're passionate about mm. on a platform like this. I mean, a podcast is a, is a mm. wonderful way to, to help people understand something that's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a mire to find your way around what is mm. psychotherapy.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming, Joe, and I'll speak to yes. you soon. Thanks, Jodie. This is episode twenty-two for the show notes. Go to the soulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions twenty-two. What is psychotherapy? Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode?
0: Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated.
1: Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online.
0: Until next time.